Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 103, It's Not Easy Being Green, on New Ecological Considerations for Running Chemical Reactions. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. It's been 10 episodes since the dreadful public revelation in the 1980s that human-generated carbon dioxide from burning organic fuels is warming planet Earth, and you thought I had forgotten about environmental chemistry. Well, guess again. This time, I offer a glimmer of hope that began to course through the chemical world in the 1990s, which continues through today. The first time that the term green chemistry appeared in print seems to be by the Irishman C. Cathcart in a paper published in the journal Chemistry and Industry London in 1990 with the appropriate title Green Chemistry in the Emerald Isle. On November 5, 1990, the United States Pollution Prevention Act came into law. Along with all the extended legalese and fine print, the Act states that, quote, The Congress hereby declares it to be the national policy of the United States that pollution should be prevented or reduced at the source whenever feasible. Pollution that cannot be prevented should be recycled in an environmentally safe manner whenever feasible. Pollution that cannot be prevented or recycled should be treated in an environmentally safe manner whenever feasible, and disposal or other release into the environment should be employed only as a last resort and should be conducted in an environmentally safe manner." To boil it down, prevent pollution rather than clean it up after the fact. That was the germ of the idea that took off the following year 1991 in the United States. The Environmental Protection Agency's Office of Chemical Safety and Pollution Prevention started a program to research how to revamp chemical processes and the products themselves to reduce detrimental environmental effects. Funding for this research was offered by the United States National Science Foundation. Around the same time, the Chemistry Council in the European Union began to disseminate papers, including one called Chemistry for a Clean World. This paper and similar ones led to the first Symposium on Green Chemistry at the 1994 ACS meeting in Chicago under the title of Benign by Design, Alternative Synthetic Design for Pollution Prevention. Adopted in 1989 and entering into force in 1992, the United Nations Basel Convention on the Control of Transboundary Movements of Hazardous Wastes and Their Disposal had the idea to get rid of hazardous materials industrial production. At least 175 nations have ratified this treaty. 
In 1996, the first annual Presidential Green Chemistry Challenge Awards were presented. The point being, as the EPA's website says, to quote recognize chemical technologies that incorporate the principles of green chemistry into chemical design, manufacture, and use. Unquote. Currently, the awards are also co-sponsored by the American Chemical Society's Green Chemistry Institute. There are five major sectors covered in these awards: academic, small business, alternative synthetic routes, reactive alternative conditions, and safer chemical designs. That year was also the first time the prestigious Gordon Research Conference held a symposium on green chemistry, though they called it environmentally benign organic synthesis because the word green was just too trendy for them. The following year, the not-for-profit Green Chemistry Institute was founded by Joe Breen and Dennis Hiresen to get industry, government, and academia to collaborate on green chemistry. According to its webpage, the Green Chemistry Institute quote catalyzes green chemistry and engineering to promote sustainability, prosperity, and equity across the global chemistry enterprise. Unquote. By 2001, the Green Chemistry Institute was absorbed into the American Chemical Society's functions, and also that year, the first green chemistry doctoral program. Was set up at the University of Massachusetts at Boston. Which brings us now to the point of the episode: green chemistry. Two Americans, Paul Anastas and John Warner, published a complete summary of the goals of green chemistry in a book. Green Chemistry Theory and Practice in 1998. In their book, they described twelve major principles of green chemistry, and we shall explore each of them. First, prevent waste instead of cleaning up or treating it after the fact. It seems obvious, but until you say it directly, most people, even chemists, didn't consider this. Generally, chemists will take their hazardous waste and dump it into a special waste can or drum, and hope that the company taking it away does the right thing. You can even do a simple calculation because math. In 1997, English chemist Roger Sheldon invented the idea of the E factor of a chemical process. The E factor is the ratio or fraction. Equal to the mass of waste divided by the mass of the product you want to make. It's a simple number to calculate and quite flexible. Waste is everything in your reaction left over that's not a desired product. So, for example, in industrial oil refining, the E factor is around 0.1, meaning that for every thousand kilograms of oil refined. You get about only a hundred of waste products. That's pretty good, but bear in mind that refineries might produce ten million tons of oils per year, giving a million tons of waste crud. 
Compare that E factor to producing bulk chemicals for synthesis industrially. Here the E factor is around one or so, meaning that for every kilogram of desired chemical, you get about a kilogram of waste. Less good, but the actual total amount of bulk chemicals made is only 1% of the oil refined. What about fine chemicals used to synthesize carefully made products in the laboratory? Here the E factor is much worse, maybe 10 or 20, meaning that your waste is 10 times the desired product. But again, maybe only 10,000 tons of fine chemical are made annually, giving still. 100,000 tons of waste. What about pharmaceutical products, which demand the highest purity of raw materials and output? The E factor is demonstrably even worse, somewhere in the range of 50. So that means for every 1,000 tons of drugs, you will get 50,000 tons of waste. Clearly, the pharmaceutical industry has some serious thinking to do to reduce its E factor. The second principle in green chemistry is atom economy, developed by American chemist Barry Trost. That is, try to incorporate all the atoms from the reactants into the products, which atoms are used and which are wasted in your reaction. For example, let's look at a bromination reaction of an alcohol, in which we remove a hydroxide group and replace it with a bromine atom. A typical bromination reaction is butanol plus sodium bromide plus sulfuric acid gives bromobutane plus sodium hydrogen sulfate plus water. We calculate here a percent atom economy by adding up the molecular weights of all the desired products. Here, bromobutane, 137 grams per mole and dividing that by the sum of the molecular weights of all the reactants. Here, it is 275 grams per mole. The result for this reaction is 50%, meaning that half the weight of the reactants is wasted. Is there a way to do this with fewer atoms wasted? Good chemistry must include this factor. The pain reliever ibuprofen is a success story. It had been synthesized using aluminum trichloride, isobutyl benzene, and solvents like carbon tetrachloride and such. The process had an E factor of 1.5, so that 14 million kilograms annually of ibuprofen also made 20 million kilograms of waste products. By the 1990s, an improved synthetic route increased efficiency dramatically to give an atom economy of over 80% and no carbon tetrachloride was required. Thirdly, let's attempt to do chemical reactions with fewer toxic chemicals. Again, sounds reasonable and obvious. But chemists do reactions that go as fast and as easily as they can get away with, and that involves laws of thermodynamics and kinetics. As Scotty from Star Trek says, you cannot change the laws of physics. Really, here it's not just the science now that matters, it's the ecology. Good chemistry must now take into account ecological effects. It's not just the product, 
because the byproducts and solvents also are important for the ecology. They affect things such as the environment too, if not the direct product itself. Fourthly, let's try to synthesize safer chemicals. This means we look at the existing products we have and see if there are substitutes which are less toxic. Thus, chemists need to work with toxicologists and determine how to do this. Chemists are happy to use very reactive molecules because such molecules undergo a lot of chemical reactions. But now we also need to include their toxicity, which often goes hand in hand with reactivity as a determination of their value to chemical processes. Fifthly, let's use fewer solvents and other chemicals in our processes. A common easy way to get molecules to react is to dissolve them in a carrier agent, a solvent. In fact, usually at least half and more than three-quarters of a reaction's mass is the solvent itself, not the reactants. Solvents also use up a large portion of the energy needed to run a reaction. You have to heat solvents, mix them with the reactants, filter out products, purify the solvents, all of which takes energy. Many solvents are also flammable, like acetones or ethers, or just plain old poisonous, like methanol. Chemists need to use less solvent if possible. Among the recommended solvents are water, ethanol, and isopropanol. On the borderline of acceptable are methanol, ethylene glycol, acetone, and acetic acid. Solvents considered problematic are toluene, xylenes, acetonitrile, and dimethyl sulfoxide. As we slide toward noxious, borderline hazardous solvents include tetrahydrofuran, cyclohexane, and pyridine. Clearly hazardous solvents are pentane, hexane, and 1,4-dioxane. Finally, the really hazardous solvents are benzene, chloroform, carbon tetrachloride, and diethyl ether. Interestingly, these last four have been commonly and traditionally used in organic chemistry, so chemists need to rethink their methods. Such nasty solvents were the liquid of choice for cleaning, say, semiconductors to make electronic components. A better choice is supercritical carbon dioxide. Supercritical means that, above a particular temperature and pressure, the gas phase and liquid phase merge. Which leads right to, sixthly, consider energy efficiency when running reactions. We know from kinetics that heating up a reaction generally makes it run faster, but do we really need to heat it that hot? Can we get by with just warming it? Seventhly, try to use renewable resources for reactants. So, attempt to incorporate biomass, such as sugars, cellulose, algae, and so on. Included in number seven is the idea that when we run a reaction, don't create more waste carbon atoms into the atmosphere than we enter into the reaction. 
Eighthly, avoid unnecessary derivatives and blocking groups in reactions. This precept is one we haven't really discussed in previous episodes, so let me explain. When chemists synthesize products, specifically, particularly organic products, along the way to prevent unwanted side reactions, they often add clusters of atoms to the intermediate molecule. These groups attached to the intermediate can block unwanted reactions or steer the reaction in a preferred direction. Adding such clusters of atoms is called making a derivative of your molecule. An example of this is when penicillin was first scaled up to an industrial process in the mid-20th century. Chemists added a protective trimethylsilyl group, three methyls attached to a silicon atom, to the penicillin. Then they reacted that intermediate with phosphorus pentachloride at minus 40 degrees Celsius, and then some other reactions to get the final penicillin product. Well, you can imagine that phosphorus pentachloride is nasty stuff, plus adding a silyl group takes reactants and energy too. Can we make our final penicillin in a more economical manner, atom and energy-wise? Yes, with enzymes and only slightly above room temperatures. No dry ice, frozen carbon dioxide, or liquid nitrogen is even needed. Ninthly, use the most selective catalysts rather than just adding reagents to your reaction. A catalyst can assist in getting a reaction to run faster, and ideally it is reusable, needed only in small amounts, which fits nicely into the green chemistry paradigm. Tenthly, let's create products that decompose after their use is complete where those decomposition products do not remain in the environment. Research is continuing within this principle, and we are certainly not there yet. Eleventhly, do analysis of your process in real time to prevent pollution. This brings into play the know-how of analytical chemists so that we know exactly what's going on and when. The Bhopal explosion in 1984 is an example of safety measures that failed and lack of analytical tools within the chemical processing. Twelfthly and lastly, pick and choose processes using safer chemicals to reduce risks when chemical accidents happen. This kind of includes many of the other principles, but it's best to explicitly state this principle up front. Try not to run a reaction or industrial process with nasty materials that do nasty things should they escape inadvertently. This principle also includes some legal oversight, such as the United States Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA, or whatever equivalent exists in your country. Actively using these 12 rules is perhaps the best way to get the general public to start viewing the chemical industry, and perhaps chemistry itself, in a more favorable light. 
there are other organizations and their journals involved in the subject of green chemistry. For example, the Royal Society of Chemistry from the United Kingdom publishes the journal Green Chemistry. There is a Center of Green Chemistry in Australia at Monash University. Japan has a Green and Sustainable Chemistry Network, and there is a cooperative effort among Mediterranean countries called the Mediterranean Countries Network on Green Chemistry. In our next episode, we talk of the race to develop magnetic resonance imaging. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.